Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Jonathan Stark, welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's great to have you back. This is You are, you are a popular uh, topic in our community because uh -oh. there's this debate going back and forth among architects uh, on Hourly, no hourly, hourly, hour, no hourly. And in our community, we have a Facebook community of architects, private community, that uh, 7,700 architects, everybody has an opinion, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and a lot of them say hourly is the, the way to go, and they will, they will, they will die on that hill. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, this, I always love having you come back and, and remind us why hourly doesn't really work so well. Mm -hmm. um, let me introduce you to those who may not know who you are. Uh, Jonathan Stark is a former software developer who is on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. He's the author of Hourly Billing is Nuts, the host of Ditching Hourly, and writes a daily newsletter on pricing for independent professionals. He's back by popular demand. This is Jonathan's return to Entree Architect Podcast. He was with us back in May of 2020, uh, just as the pandemic started to destroy our uh, our world around us we were talking back in episode 324 uh jonathan shared his origin story back there we discussed it, his thoughts uh, as he puts uh, puts it on why hourly billing is nuts so 
go back to episode 324 and listen to that. Um, what we're going to do here is I want to talk about in that episode, we talked about the why. Um, in this episode, I want to talk about the how. So 324, why ditch bill, hourly billing. In this episode, we're going to talk about how do you do that? How do how do we transition away from that? Does that sound like a good good way to go, Jonathan? Perfect framework. Yep. All right. Um, let's see here. Let's see where we should start. Let's say um, a firm that's been billing hourly for maybe five or ten years. Right. This is the way they've been doing it since they launched, um, and they've and you've convinced them they should move away from hourly they don't know how to do that. Um, maybe bef- let's sort of use that as a context, sort of as a, as a structure to have that conversation. Um, maybe before we jump into the, the, the sort of the steps of how to transition, maybe you can provide just for context a little bit about what we talked about in 324 about, you know, three or four reasons why we shouldn't be using hourly billing and then we'll jump into the house. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just for a little, teeny bit more context, the firm that we're going to use as an example, how many people are employed there? Let, let's say they have a team of seven. Okay, and they have, uh, and, and they are full-time employees, or are they contractors? A mix. There's, there's, let's say there's five employees and two 1099s. Okay, perfect. And, okay, and so what's, why is hourly billing nuts? So that we can start there as a quick overview. Um, the first thing is that it, I mean, maybe the biggest thing is it artificially limits your income. It just puts a ceiling on your income. And, and really the only way to scale it up is to add bodies. So add headcount and mark up their time or, you know, in the case of the contractors or hope that you can keep your full-time employees busy enough to cover payroll. And I mean, it's, you just can't, dramatically i've never heard of anyone dramatically scaling up their profits with that model it it is one way to create leverage and and surely certainly there are different kinds of firms not just architecture firms that do make this model work by just adding more and more and more and more bodies so that there's enough you know that that 10 you know maybe 10 percent profit margin that they're getting off the employees maybe it's even 20. eventually there's enough to support the lifestyle that the, the owner wants uh, but the, the the insidious thing about that is that I, I have talked to many people who have started firms, not because they wanted to, and they wanted to be a great leader and a good boss and manage a big team. It's They actually didn't want to do that, but they saw it as the only way to scale up their income on an hourly model. It's the only way. You need more hours to sell. So, right. that's right you're not hours selling are, your service hours are a limited resource there's you only have so many hours to sell right and it creates all kinds of other perverse incentives that we could go into but I, we talked about all of that last time yeah yeah and the one thing that I, I i experimented with hourly when i first started and immediately moved away from it because every month was a negotiation every month was either a negotiation with my client over why i worked that many hours or it was a nego- which is more likely and a negotiation with myself as I was as I was preparing the invoice, I'm like, oh, I can't possibly charge them all those hours. You know, I worked way more hours than they're going to pay. They're not going to pay that bill, so mm-hmm. I I reduce the hours and send them off a, an hourly bill that's not even accurate. Right, um, it's fudge. It's fudged always. It's yeah. it's very common for people to fudge stuff, usually in their against themselves. 
So they usually will say, oh, wow, that really shouldn't have taken me that long. Or I spent two hours getting up to speed on some new regulation or something. I can't really charge the client for that. So they, they penalize themselves, even though the deal was right. anytime that was the deal. Right. But, but then they'll penalize themselves and cut their own hours, but they, they never do the reverse and they shouldn't do the reverse, which is like, wow, I finished that twice as fast as I thought I, I would have. So I'm going to bill them for two hours instead of one, because that would not be ethical because that's not the deal. So already, if, if you're listening to this and you're already eating hours, you're already not really keeping the deal. Like you're not even keeping the bargain with yourself because you know, it's screwed up. Like deep down, you know, it's messed up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so many architects work that way. So yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are many listeners right now nodding their head. So let's, let's jump right into the how, right? So go back to 324. If you want to learn more about why, if you're not convinced yet, if you are convinced, I want this to be a resource. I want this episode to be a resource. So let's start off um, maybe, Jonathan, with, with the alternatives to mm -hmm. hourly. If, if I'm no longer going to work uh, hourly, what are the alternatives for my small firm? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, especially for a firm, somebody who has payroll, uh, they probably have, and, and you said they've been in business for many years. Yeah. The notion of the billable hour will be baked in as an underlying assumption all over the business. It'll be everywhere. It'll be in your software systems. It'll be in your processes. It'll be in your billing systems. It'll be in your incentives for your employees. It's possible it's even part of an incentive, like you need to get in this many hours and then you get a bonus or whatever. And it, so it's everywhere. It's like a cancer all throughout the body of the firm. So it's no small feat to get it out of there. Uh, it's when when I was at a firm and I had this sort of epiphany about trading time for money causing all of our the problems that we were facing, I, you know, and I said to the boss, like, look, we need to, this is the problem. This this would solve all of the problems we have with invoicing and fighting about invoices and estimating and all of that stuff it would solve all that. And he was like, I see what you're saying intellectually, but how would we do it? And I, I didn't have an answer. I didn't know what to do. So I went solo try it out. So I cheated is what I'm saying. So I, <laughs> I didn't have to originally, you know, but this was 15 years ago or so 2006, whatever, whatever that is. And, and since then I've worked with quite a, you know, quite a few firms, usually around that size, as a matter of fact, some bigger occasionally, but usually around five to 10 people. And the, you don't go cold turkey. It's not going to happen. Right. So you need to come up with some kind of escape plan to bootstrap your, yourself out of it. And broadly speaking, there are three three ways, three categories that you can explore to start to separate your income from your time. Probably the easiest to understand would be product. So if you have you obviously been business for this this hypothetical person has been in business for 10 years they probably be in, they must have been delivering value to their clients they must have some happy clients there's something they're doing right there's some expertise in there that's valuable so packaging it up in a different way so delivering it in a way that you you're not accustomed to uh, in in this case would be some kind of digital product that's the that's the it's like playing on easy mode. If you can come up with some way to package your expertise in a digital format that produces no marginal cost when you sell and sell and sell and sell them, and they just auto they're automatically delivered. You just a buy now button on your website, and boom, download it done. 
so that could be something you know you could help me brainstorm this but i i can just guess that you know blueprints for yeah. stuff right? yeah the easiest so, the easiest um example of that are our home plans mm-hmm. you know pre-designed home plans and, and sure. a lot of architects are, are are starting to experiment with that mm-hmm. um, it makes a lot of sense to design some homes or design even in, in additions that people can use for specific styles mm-hmm. um package them up offer them as a digital product fully automated download push mm-hmm. the button get paid and the pushback that you'll get from people when they explore this idea is, well, how much can I charge for that? And the number's usually super low compared to, you know, an hourly project, so the, you know, an amount of revenue that they get from an hourly project. And they'll say like, well, but it'll take me 40 hours to create that and vet it and set it up and all of that, that upfront time investment because they're still thinking about time all the time. But what they miss is that when you create a digital product like that, you're essentially creating an annuity. So that thing, like, yes, there is a, some initial setup, but that thing can just sell and sell and sell and sell forever, pretty much. I mean, there might be some need to update it at some point. Maybe there's an error or some new regulation that causes that particular structure to not be legal or something. I don't know. Something could happen, I suppose. But... And the and the person doing the math would be like, well, if I spent that forty hours on on a job billing out at two hundred dollars an hour, that would be you know like do the math eight thousand dollars or something, and it would I would have to sell ten thousand of these things to get eight thousand dollars, you know. So they're like, where am I going to get those sales? Where are those sales going to come from? And you're right, you do have you have to create awareness, you have to do marketing, you have to position yourself as something that people care about and want, desire, and they'll come looking and they'll look at your exorbitant (laughs) one-on-one custom services and they'll say well maybe i'll just buy the plans for 500 dollars or for 50 dollars or whatever it would be and if you look at it like an annuity yes there's this time investment up front but it will pay out for years and years to come so you can't do that math you you need to um, you know you need to view it don't view it as the hours it takes to set the thing up you need to view it as like money you put in the bank that's throwing off dividends every month. And that investment that you make, the amount of money that you would have to put in the bank to earn some kind of rate of return that was worthwhile at all is way higher than the amount of hourly dollars you would lose by creating these, let's say, blueprints in the first place. So it Yeah. Okay. So the idea is you would continue to do, you could continue billing hourly for your normal stuff. If you, you know, if you're going to wean yourself off of hourly, but you need to carve out that 40 hours or whatever, whatever it is to create the product, set it up and start some kind of marketing ball rolling. And then you just let it roll. And then you do another one. Maybe you do another one. Right. You've got three or four or five of these things. That's where the magic kicks in is when you do multiple. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, they, they also act as marketing for you. So if someone downloads your plan and they love it, but they're overwhelmed by it, or they, they don't take whatever the next step they need to do in the DIY, because this would be a DIY thing, uh, then they could reach out to you for another category of product, which, I, which you know, to move from products, move to productized services. You could have something farther up your product ladder, maybe 10 times more expensive than a blueprint. I mean, is five hundred dollars unrealistic for a blueprint for say an edition? Um, right? I, I've seen five hundred dollar uh, home plans before, uh, but I've also seen five thousand dollar home plans. Okay. Um, 
So it depends. It depends on 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 the architect and the brand that's been built around that architect. Mm-hmm. Depends on on the the market they're pr- pursuing, sure. and and what comes with that. Because sometimes, which is probably moving more towards the productized service. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the plan comes with that service. It's part of the package. Right. So productized service is the second way after, you know, products is the first way to get off of the hourly billing. The second way would be productized services. And a productized service is a fixed scope service that you offer at a published price on your website. So it sells like a product, but then you deliver it like a service. And the thing that's different here from a normal project or like probably what you're used to as a custom, everyone's different project is that the scope is fixed. So you need to design it in a way that no matter who buys it, it's basically the same amount of time and materials on, on your part. And you just do that thing over and over again. And over time, as you get better and better at delivering it, you create systems around the delivery, maybe you've got boilerplate, I don't know, whatever is involved with it, you systematize it more and more and more over time. So it costs you less and less and less to deliver the the same outcome. And as it becomes more and more well known, and more and more popular, you can increase the price. So your cost is going down while the price is going up. And your profit margin is, you know, it's growing in a more exponential way than just a linear, you know, thin margin type of thing. And I've had, I haven't talked to an architect that's done it, but I've talked to many firm owners who have broken in, broken into or broken out of the hamster wheel, the hourly hamster wheel by finding a need in a, in a, maybe a growing space or an underserved space, creating a productized service for it. And it ends up just taking over their whole business in a good way. All of a sudden they're like, whoa, this is way less risky for us. It's way less fighting with the client. It's so much more fun. We we can knock it out of the park every single time. We're so good at it that we can give a hundred percent money back guarantee and we're not even nervous because we, you know, even if it did happen, it would be such an edge case that it wouldn't even impact the bottom line hardly at all. And this can be a very, you know, the pushback for product-based service though, as I describe it to a lot of folks is that, oh, I'll get bored doing the same thing over and over and over again, or, um, or it'll be impossible to actually come up with something that is fixed scope. There'll always be change requests or whatever, you know, and, and these are all, I understand these concepts, but uh, they don't actually come to pass. You, you figure it out very quickly, how to keep the scope fixed and and how do, you're and generally you're not really going to get bored by it because it is delivered like a service the thing that the thing that doesn't change every time is your process or the tools that you bring to bear like your, the system stays the same the time box stays the same but it's always going to be a different client it's always going to be interesting or unique in some way it's just not completely from scratch every time yeah and because you get so good at it you actually start to enjoy it because mm-hmm. the game becomes, how do I get better at it? Mm-hmm. Um, there are several, arch- well, many architects now focusing on ADUs, accessory dwelling units, small houses that are being built on properties with big houses. Mm-hmm. Um, the ADU uh, regulations are changing throughout the country. And so that's a great place to focus on a productized service. It's a house that you've maybe pre-designed. It's a pretty small scope. 
you know the process of getting that approved and, and built. Um, and so that's, that's an example. You could also look at all of the projects that you're working on, right? And think about what are the projects that you get over and over and over again, right? If you were, if you were a, a residential alterations and additions architect like I am, um, there are certain projects that your market asks for over and over and over again. For us, it was um, family rooms, uh, kitchen additions, master bathroom suites, right? And because our market was a very specific market, those projects were very, very similar. So we could package them up and say, okay, a family room addition costs this. A master bathroom suite renovation costs this. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a way for us to to productize our services. Um, I, so, I want to call yeah. out one thing that you, that you said there that is really important, which is that you were serving a very particular market. So something that, that happens with the productized service concept is that, that people work before they've done one, they worry that, uh, that the scope actually would be very different for very different kinds of, of clients, which tells me that they're not positioned well in a market and they're attracting all different, you know, commercial and residential, uh, projects, uh, landscape stuff, interior stuff. Like they're just getting this wild mess, this patchwork of different kinds of projects all the time. And if somebody comes along to buy a productized service and they're actually not a good fit for it, you know, someone, someone wants to buy your uh, bathroom renovation package, um, or bathroom addition package or suite. What did you say? Master suite. And yeah. they come along and it's like a hotel and they want it. It's like, Hey, we're, I, I know you usually do this for residential, but we want to buy it for our hotel. You just say no. Right. Say this is not for you. We can talk about. I'd be maybe you'd be happy to work with them, and we can talk about a custom proposal. But this is not for you. You're not allowed to buy this. And by being very specific about who the productized service is for, you can actually be very. It can be very predictable how much what the scope is going to be for a given project. And if you do want to create, if you're getting a lot of these hotel requests for this residential project, we'll make another one for hotels. It's like. You know, in the, the sales page, you could say, oh, are, are you a hotelier who needs to renovate a bunch of, I don't know, uh, boutique hotel bathrooms or something? And maybe you've got some package per room or I don't know. But it's important to know that these productized services, they're very focused on, you need to find a way that, to keep the scope fixed. And usually yeah. part of that calculation is by only selling it to the right buyer, the ideal buyer for that thing. Exactly. And we, this community has worked really hard at finding their ideal client. We've focused on that uh, here on the podcast. We've written blog posts about it. We have a, 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 a full month, 30 day workshop that we've done. We've okay. done courses. So r that is the first step, right? Before mm -hmm. you get into this hourly billing stuff, you need to understand who your ideal client is. Um, and you can go to uh, our brand course and figure that out and then come back to this because understanding your brand, again, we've talked to this over and over again, here's another reason why knowing your ideal client makes everything easier, right? Knowing 100%. your ideal client makes your billing easier because now you you can create these products for your ideal client who is looking for them. Mm -hmm. It's not even billing anymore, it's pricing. Right. So yeah, it, it, it gives you ESP. Like when someone comes along, when your ideal buyer comes along, you can tell them, what they want before they even open their mouths, pretty much, you know, with just a right. small amount of details. It's not like this detective work 
like on a normal situation, like it's like, oh, we heard you're really good. We want to build a, you know, a, a vacation home somewhere. It's just like, and then you have to go through this whole process of finding out what they want, all the needs and all the fear of like, like, oh, this could spiral out of control and all that stuff. It's like it, all that, all that frustration and stress goes away if you just pick who you want to serve. Right. Like who, like my philosophy is help people you like get what they want. So it starts off with, who do you like? Who do you want to work with? Who do you want to spend time with? Because you're going to be interacting with these people as much as your family. So it's is like, figure that out. And it's a strategic decision, which means that it shuts off other avenues of right. possibilities. So it, it creates fear. But it makes everything so much easier, 10 times easier, at least. All of a sudden, your marketing works. Huh, what do you know? <laughs> right, right. right. And you have more time because you're you're more efficient. You have more money, right? So you're happy. Your client, your your employees are happier. You're happier. Your family's happier. So many reasons. Yeah. Um, I, let's not go into ideal client. Um, all right. So we started with product, and yep. we talked about productized services. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the what's your third? The third one is project pricing. So pricing a project, and I would recommend using value value-based pricing to calculate your fees for custom projects so and i have it's and i have a, an elaborate sort of framework built around this that touches on a, a number of different things but in short the concept is that someone would come along with a project doesn't fit into your productized services it's much more complicated than anybody could do on their own so product is out needs to be a custom project and right. you, you offer custom projects so these are, in the software world where I'm from, a project is sort of a collaborative enterprise or, or engagement between the client and or the buyer and the seller that's gonna take place over the course of months, yep. some, sometimes years. And you're talking the same, same for architects. Oh, same for architects, yep. Well, let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is brought to you by BQE, the makers of BQE Core, systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures, but you struggle with choosing which systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by acclaimed architect and business consultant, Douglas Teeger, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from a solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Teeger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in the years to come. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit and when you visit bqe.com masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. 
The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free, and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out our financials on our own is not one of those things. Luckily, we have FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business, from building and tracking invoices, to managing online payments, to organizing expenses, and automates them with features like the digital bills and a receipt scanner, saving you up to 11 hours a week in the process. It's also super easy to get up and running, and the award-winning FreshBooks support team, they are always available to answer any questions along the way. Compare that to some of the other financial management tools out there. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com architect to get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. So what will you do with 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by rcat.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, a.k.a. CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by ArtCat. Listen and subscribe right now at ArtCat.com podcast. That's ArtCat.com podcast. A-R-C-A-T dot com slash podcast detailed every building has a story please visit our sponsors today and thank them thank them for supporting you the entree architect community for a typical architecture project it's it's month month you know several months several years it's a collaborative process typically custom right we're trying to figure out how to design this specific building for a specific client in a specific mm-hmm. location. Mm-hmm. And so that's where this, this project pricing would come in. So, and, and this is, this is tough. This is tricky because, you know, even thinking about this, I'm sure people are listening saying I could never give a fixed price for a project. They're always like twice as much as I thought they were going to be. They always spiral out of control or the clients are sometimes they're super needy and they want to talk to me all the time. And, and when someone says that to me, I'm like, <laughs> especially the going way over budget thing. It's like, maybe you're actually not that great at estimating, you know? 
And why would you be? You're not, you're not incentivized to get good at estimates. In fact, all of the incentives are for you to lowball so that you get the job. And then once they're six months into it, they're not going to bet on a different horse because you started to go over budget or the project started to go over budget, but they are going to get increasingly frustrated and, and angry. It's going to become more and more uncomfortable. You know, the all caps emails start coming in <laughs> Yeah. and right. So, so like, look at, look, look how bad that is. All right. So we're, we're coming in, we're supposedly the professional, but we can't, we can't keep the client out of their own way. We can't keep the client from messing up the project. I feel like there needs to be on a long-term project like this. You need to be a good communicator. You need to have a good bedside manner and you need to protect the client from themselves. And how do you do that? You do that by figuring out what their desired outcome is. So in a situation where, you know, you said a building, which feels like a commercial endeavor. So, um, but, but this would be true even for a, a private residence. If you start at the very beginning by figuring out why the person wants this project done in this particular way, why this, what are we are you trying to achieve here? What's your dream scenario? Like if this was a massive home run, what would that look like? And that's not a list of rooms or square feet or right. it's, it's an experience of, I want this to be a retreat for, you know, I'm a grandparent now and I want this to be a retreat for generations to come where people can feel a particular way and we can watch our kids grow up and, you know, they don't want seven bedrooms and five baths. And, and I mean, they might say that they'll probably start by saying stuff like that, but you need to go past that and find out what their desired outcome really is. How do they want to feel at the end? And once you know how they want to feel at the end, you can bring your expertise to bear to guide them in all of those number of fireplace decisions or where should we put the pool? Because you've got an actual goal that, that you theoretically could hit if you're good, right? And if you understand this, this person's desired outcome, you can keep them on track and moving in that direction and don't let them steer the cab from the back seat saying like, oh no, I think we should put that over there. Or I think it should be, I don't know, a, a different design or whatever. Like you're the expert at your craft, your profession. They're the expert at what they want. They are the expert at that. But I, when I say what they want, I mean the outcome. Right. They're not the expert at construction or design or any of that stuff. So once you have that sort of desired outcome defined and you are confident that you can move the needle to get them, you can help them with that transformation, then you can price it. And then when usually by pricing, I, I would give them a proposal with three prices, three options, incremental tiered options, small, medium, and large, good, better, best, however you want to think about it, you know, uh, DIY, D, you know, do it yourself, done with you, done for you. There's different ways you can break up the three options, but you had present them with a proposal with three prices, small, medium, and large, that are based on the value to the buyer. What's it worth to them to have this retreat for their grandkids? It's going to be different for everyone. Every It's going to depend on how badly they want it. It's going to depend on their buying power. And it's going to depend on the availability of options, other other people besides you, or, or completely other options, like buying pre-built, something that's already built. So 
this sort of max price formula, I call it, of those three uh, components will combine to create a price that, that, or a value at the end. And then you can set prices that are a fraction of the value to this particular person. And inside of each one of those prices, I would come up with a scope last, scope last. What am I going to do for, what can I do for this person who I believe I can help to get them to their goal for $10,000, let's say. And you think of the scope last. So what could I do? What would I be fist pumpingly happy to do for $10,000 to help this client with this, achieve this outcome? You're not going to do the whole thing. You're not going to, you don't, you can only do a little bit for that amount of money. And then you think, all right, what for $22,000, what could I do to help this client move the needle? I could get more involved. I could put more people on it. Maybe I could, I could um, take more responsibility for my piece less responsibility on them or their builder or whoever else they have. And then you think, all right, for $50,000, what would I be super happy to do for $50,000 to help this person get closer to their goal? And when you scope last, you give yourself tons of margin, tons of room to be wrong. So if you say, you know, it's, it's $10,000 for the first option, you put in a scope that you would, you would, you sort of begrudgingly do for 5,000, but you would happily do for 10. You see what I mean? Yeah. You're putting margin in, so, but it's not by pumping up the price, it's by decreasing the scope. And then you present them with these three options in the proposal, and they'll consider the differences between the options, and they'll say, well, based on, based on how I'm feeling about this and how much money I have and all of the, you know, the, the differences between these options, Number two seems like the best. Usually, a lot of times they'll go with number two when you're actually good at doing this. Uh, if you're not great at doing it and you still are pricing yourself way too low, they'll pick three every time. And that's a sign that you are you have underestimated the value to the person of their desired outcome. So you want if that that top that top level to be a reach. Yes. Yeah. That's your so the it's sort of like an insurance policy for you, and it also gives you it gives you an indication of whether or not you're leaving money on the table. So if people are always picking one, it means that you're really, you, you need to come up with a way to either attract clients for whom the value will be much higher, or you need to find ways to uh, offer value, uh, set your prices lower and commensurately lowering your scope as well for each thing. But usually the easier thing is to just get clients that have more buying power. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and this is also a, another reason, and going back to brand again, another reason why it's important to build that strong brand and have that ideal client, because now you now that that's built into that that price, right? That's part of the value of what you're bringing to this client. That you're you're not everybody else. You are you. You're you're the brand that you've built. So they want you. You're no longer a commodity. Um, and if you're working as a commodity, right? If you're just out there working with clients who are shopping prices, none of this is going to work. Correct. Right. So you have to have a strong brand that that people recognize you for what you do. Um, go ahead. Yeah, and that max price formula where you've got you basically have um, desire times money divided by options. So desire, how badly do they want this outcome? Money, how what's the buying power? How much money can they come up with? And then availability of options. 
is all contingent on your positioning, your brand, your marketing. If they think that you're no, there's no meaningful difference between you and the next firm, well then yeah, you're in a race to the bottom. Right. You need to be meaningfully different, not different in your own head like, oh, we're much better than them. And you need to be different in a way that your buyers, your ideal buyers, recognize and it matters to them. Otherwise, the only thing that will be meaningful between firm A and firm B to a client is the price. It's the only, it's the last thing. It's the last ditch effort for them picking between this and that. So if you're not meaningful, dif meaningfully different, it's just two apples in the barrel, they're going to pick the cheaper one. Right. Why wouldn't they? Right. And we, we built a whole podcast on this called Build Your Brand. And so it, it's all about, um, the, uh, season one is all about Southwest Airlines and talking about how Southwest Airlines built their brand and then the lessons that architects can learn from mm -hmm. Southwest Airlines on how to build a strong brand. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said before, we have whole courses and workshops on all of this. Um, but that, that again, that, that's, that's part of it, right? The, none of this stuff is isolated from one another. It's all part of the solution for making your business better. You need to build the brand. You need to understand your ideal client. You need to understand your expenses. You need to understand the value that you bring. You need to understand your client very, very well in order to understand what they are willing to pay, right? When you do that same project over and over and over again, when you're an expert in the work that you do, you know that client probably better than they know themselves. Exactly. So you know how much they're willing to pay. And so then you can price your, your services commensurate to that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So if you, if you currently, cause this, you know, we're today, we're talking about how to transition. If you currently are not well differentiated, you're not specialized, you're not attracting a, a steady stream of a ideal buyer. You're getting all kinds of different work and you just you just your marketing game you're just doing client work all the time you're not doing any any positioning marketing branding none of that you're not doing any of that and or even if you are but it's not getting any traction you're not getting any inbound leads you're not getting the right kind of leads then i probably would this is one of those cases where i'd be like all right you might want to focus on the productized service piece or the product piece while you get your branding and positioning and all of that right. stuff squared away yep. because you can value price projects even when you're sort of undifferentiated but it's not going to help because the you, you can do it but it's not going to increase your profits that much because you're always going to have this downward price pressure because you're the same as the apple next door so you could still do it this way and it could still be profitable, but it's not going to be home runs, you know, like that people think of when they think of value pricing, like plenty of people who are well positioned as an expert, the go-to firm or person for a particular thing, who's especially a soloist that's really frustrated because they're getting better and better and better at delivering amazing outcomes to their clients and they're still getting paid 200 bucks an hour for it. So, you know, you've you don't have to have very many like one-off phone calls with someone for 200 bucks and then hear later that they made a million dollars off of your advice to start thinking, hmm, I might be leaving some money on the table with this model. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's so, yeah. But you do, so if you do have a strong positioning, you are attracting those kinds of clients. Someone who then, you know, has a sales interview, does the why conversation I've talked about here in other places, and then 
writes a value priced proposal with three incremental options, they can double their their revenue in a year easily, you know, without working more. In fact, right. actually right, working less, working less and having even that less work be a more pleasurable experience because right. the client's not freaking out about money all the time and arguing about invoices that are coming in because it's the money part's over. Yeah. The yeah. expectations have been set. So now mm -hmm. you just go to work and meet those expectations. Yeah, that's your job. The job is to keep the project, to get the project to a successful outcome as fast as humanly possible without compromising quality. So it's a much more, it's a fun job. That's the job you're here to do. Right. You're not here to track your time and invoice and invoices and, and fight about hours and all of that other stuff. You can actually focus on the thing that you love doing and with the goal of just delivering 100% customer satisfaction as quick as possible and getting that raving testimonial to add back to your website. Yeah, I love the idea of taking these three methods and doing all of them, right? Mm -hmm. Build build the products, build the productized services, use that as sort of the foundation of your business, right? Let that passive income come in, let that, that simple repetitive project happen um, in that productized service. And then on the projects that you really want to excel on, then you go to project pricing and value-based pricing uh, to to be able to and use that on those those select clients, those select projects that you want to excel in uh, and provide at a very high level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's great. I love that idea, especially for startups, right? If you're a startup, start that way. Start with products. <laughs> start with with productized services. Then work your way up to to building that brand and understanding of value-based pricing. What about that? firm that's been around for five or 10 years. Mm -hmm. I got a, I have, let's say I have, you know, five or six clients that are, that I'm working with all the time already set up as hourly clients, right? Mm -hmm. Now I've built this habit that we're going to build, uh, that we're going to build them hourly. So how do I transition my clients to one of these better models? Very tricky. It's like, yeah. it's like getting out of the friend zone. They, they ha have, they have a relationship with you that they are happy with evidently and for you to come along and say like oh i know we've been friends but now i want to get married you know or <laughs> right or be yeah. romantic um it's very difficult and so the the short answer is it's probably easier to just get new clients than start them clean yeah but sometimes you sometimes people i work with have just a great client a really great long-term client, lots of trust in both directions. And, and they're open to a conversation where they would come up, they could come up with some kind of more, a, a different payment model that doesn't count hours. So for example, if my landscaper came to me and said, you know, right now, cause what they, they do hourly, it's time and materials and they send a team of people here and they, they you know they burn i don't know i don't even look at it but i get a, an invoice every month for some number of of person hours plus some mulch or whatever and it usually works out to be between 300 and 400 dollars and i'm happy with the work they're they're quick they're clean they're reasonably quiet for a landscaping team if they came to me and said listen um we're changing the the business model a little bit and we're going back to our good clients like you and, and looking back over historically what the payments have been. And they're usually about 350 bucks a month. What do you say we just switch to a flat $350 a month? And, but then here's the trick. Then 
they need to guarantee some kind of outcome because now they're not proving that they showed up and, you know, cause now the right. quality could, they could start cutting hours and doing yep. a bad job. So there needs to be some kind of outcome guarantee, but I would do that in a heartbeat because then I could put it on auto pay and you know, my, my tacit assumption would be that the quality wouldn't drop, but then that would give them all kinds of freedom to optimize maybe send in a smaller team that takes longer or maybe send an even bigger team that takes two minutes. They can all of a sudden they have all this flexibility to innovate on their product, their service uh, that doesn't need to be justified by how many hours their people spent on my lawn. So if you do have a client that's really long term and and it's reasonably stable amount of money that they've been that you've been invoicing them for, you could talk about saying, hey, let's just make this a fixed monthly thing. And in exchange for that, I will make you happy in these ways as quickly as possible. And it's not about hours anymore. And it's going to be about making sure they're happy every month. So when that when that that charge hits their credit card, they're going to be like, oh, that was worth it. Right, right. And I would also say that that for some clients that you know are not going to be happy about the change you, and you want them, right? Um, then just keep working with them hourly, but keep working on building other clients that are not hourly, that are value-based, that are products, that are productized services, and continue to build the percentage of those types of projects to the hourly projects. And what will happen is either that hourly project will become this insignificant part of your business and it's just, it's a happy client, the hourly billing, okay, you bill them hourly, or you'll get to a point where you're like, I don't want that client anymore. Yes. And you just fire them because you'd rather more of this other type of client. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You introduce them to someone who can serve their needs better. Um, exactly. <laughs> now there is a, now, especially in this scenario where we're talking about someone who has payroll, uh, sometimes you want to maintain the utilization of your employees so that even if you could, even if you were bringing enough money in to cover payroll, you still don't want your employees doing nothing. That's not good for them or their morale. It makes them nervous. So you could say like to yourself, well, switching over to this product thing, switching over to this productized service thing, I actually don't need as many people to make the same amount of money. I could lay people off or stop using my contractors. Like that will happen. So, or at least you, that option will be open to yeah. you. Or you once can grow. Starts to work. Or you can grow, right. You can, whatever, whatever you want to do, you can do. But during the transition phase, it might make sense to to have you know a particular employee dedicated to that one client, and they they're still doing the hourly thing. But that's sort of vestigial organ that right. yep. is, you keep around for reasons that because it's too painful to remove for whatever reason. Um, and yes, the danger is the danger is if you don't have other employees, it's a smaller firm, and you, the owner, is getting you're, you're getting sucked into the the hourly thing, where say the client is like, oh, I really need, I really want this done quickly. I don't care how many hours it takes, but I, for some reason I've got a deadline and I want this done quickly. So and there there's pressure on you. There's sometimes there's pressure on you from them to put in a lot of hours every week, so they feel like the momentum is not slowing down, and that prevents you from working on your business because it sucks up all your time. So if you don't have someone to delegate that hourly projects. To, to and you can't keep them to like 20 hours of your time per week it starts to get dangerous because now it's it's um, sucking up all of your 
innovation time, all of your CEO or your founder, your president, your business time, and you're just doing client work, building somebody else's life or business. So that's the danger of keeping those, the hourly clients around is if they're sucking up all of your time right. as the owner. Yep. Right, exactly. So, so Jonathan, we talked about alternatives. We talked about transitioning clients. Um, any other tips or strategies that we should be aware of before we wrap things up? There's a quick one that I, that I use for some people doing a transition, um, which, which just briefly, you could, you get a new client that comes through the door, you have an inter, you know, sales interview with them and you're going to, you're going to scope, basically scope first, and you're going to estimate the number of hours and you're going to present them with a proposal and sort of a take it or leave it. It's your normal process. Probably at least that's how it was with software devs when I did it. And here's the one difference. You could do one thing differently. You could say, well, it's going to be, let's just for round numbers, say it's $10,000. It's probably pretty low, but let's just say it's $10,000 worth of hours. Or you just add an option on there. You add an option or I'll guarantee a fixed price of 18500 and we'll just, we'll get it done. So there's no variability in the price. It's more, but you know it won't go over. So they can, so what this does is it makes it clear to the buyer that the 10,000 is an estimate. It could be wrong. It's never lower. It's always higher or close. So it's extremely rare for it to be on the money. And by the way, if you're, if you're nailing your estimates now, why talk about hours at all? Just give them the price. Right. <laughs> right? Yep. But anyway, so, so if you, but you're new to it, don't, you don't get this, you're not feeling it. Just tack on that 85%, specifically 85% fixed price premium on top, you know, in addition, and let them choose between the risky one that might be cheaper or the safer one that will definitely be this amount. And this, this triggers that risk calculation in the buyer's mind. And a surprising number of them don't want the risk and will happily pay the premium for that higher one. And then you don't have to track hours. You don't have to worry about that. You can just do the best job as fast as possible and everybody's happy. The other funny thing about doing this approach is when I walk through the exercise with someone and they say, yeah, I think it'll be about $10,000. That'd be my estimate. And I say, okay, so you do it fixed for eighteen five, And they're like, no way. And I'm like, well, I think your estimate might be a little low then. So what's, what is the fixed price number that you would agree to? And then reverse engineer the estimate. Right. Because otherwise you're lowballing the client. If you, it, you have no business estimating something that you're not even sure of it could it could be twice as much that's a yeah. terrible estimate and that that's where our, a lot of architects end up with hourly billing is exactly that scenario mm -hmm. and not really knowing putting an estimate on it because the client wants an estimate but you're not willing to lock in a price that's 85 percent more than that estimate which means you know that estimate's low you know that you know estimate's it's low. wrong you definitely you don't think it's high yeah yeah. Right. You know it's low. And and think what that does to the client relationship. You're supposed to be the professional. You're the expert at this. Yeah. But that's a very good uh, strategy to, to make that transition, right? If you're mm -hmm. not fully comfortable yeah. going all in, try this experiment on the next project. Do, do it the on a hourly. small one, though. Yeah. Do the hourly and then do, you know, a flat fee on top of it, you know, as an option. Yeah. See, do See what they say. Do this on a shed, not a mansion. Yeah, small, small project. Small project. Experiment. See how it works. It, 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 
it'll give you some confidence, right? That if they do pick that higher one, they're like, oh, maybe I can go, you know, you know, with this new alternative billing strategy. It'll definitely make you appear different to all of your hourly billing colleagues who yeah. probably won't. Because you know, what you're saying with that estimate is I don't stand behind my prices. It's not a great look. Right. What would you say is one thing that a small firm architect can do right now today to build a better business for tomorrow? Specialize. And that can be done in a variety of ways. It could be specialized on a particular buyer, particular kind of project. It could be a particular kind of architecture. It could be handicap ramps or it, it is specialized. It could be stained glass powder rooms. I don't care. But if you specialize and you become known for this thing, that will help you with that denominator in that max price calculation because you will be the go-to firm for that thing. And then you can build a whole product ladder around it with productized services and products and um, other packaged kind. You could have more than one productized service. There are a lot of different kinds, advisory retainers, all kinds of things that you can do with productized services. So yeah, I would say specialize in, in some way, either in your, in your discipline, your skills, and or you can combine these your vertical so who do you work with so your right. your market and your discipline you find some it's kind of like at your sketch remember those you sure. turn the two dials to where you're the only one in the quadrant yeah yeah excellent advice uh jonathan stark is his name you can learn more about him and all the things he's doing over at jonathanstark.com he's got a book called hourly billing is nuts we'll have a link to that on the show notes and he's got a podcast. If you want to listen to hours and hours of Jonathan talking about hourly billing and, and how to get, you know, he talks to interesting people, uh, ditchinghourly.com is the, is the podcast. Go subscribe. Jonathan, I appreciate you for being out there talking about hourly billing, trying to convince the world to, to make this change. The, the, your, your business gets easier, right? Everything gets easier and therefore happier and less stressful. Uh, when you're when your architect when your architecture firm is running smoothly, you have that consistent income coming in. It's important, and that's happening all around the world because of the work that you're doing, Jonathan. So I appreciate you for being out there talking about hourly billing um, and these alternatives to hourly billing. But I also appreciate you for coming back here at the Entree Architect Podcast. My pleasure, anytime. Thanks for spreading the word. I'm on a mission. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, go write a review. I would love to know what you think of this podcast and it helps other architects find us. So go do five-star rating if you like it, share, write a review, I'd love it, and share a link to this episode with a friend because that's how we've grown. That's how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands of architects throughout the world just like you. Thank you to our sponsors, RCAT, FreshBooks and BQE for their support of this episode. I ask you to support them because they support us. And if they're supporting us, they're supporting you. So go support them. Got it? Go support our sponsors. Links to our sponsors. So you can click on those links and go right to them. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we shared today are available at the show notes for this episode at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. All the shows are there. entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows. I think there are 11 of them there now. Go there, gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. 
And I hope you're going to join us in Austin November 1st through November 3rd, 2022. Those are the dates for the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting, our first ever live and in-person conference for you, the small firm architect community. Visit entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting right now to learn more. That's entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting, and I will see you in Austin in November. Don't miss this. This is going to be great. EntreeArchitect.com slash annual meeting. It's a conference for you, small firm architects. Thank you for listening today to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. 
And so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.